rte.ie forward slash drama on one. In 10 days time on January the 18th, 2023 to be precise, film director, producer and writer John Borman turns 90. Just before Christmas and after spending over 50 years living and working in Ireland in his beloved Anna Mo, John returned to England to live with his son Charlie and daughter-in-law Olivia. John is a favourite co-collaborator and conspirator here on Drama on One and since 2010 he's written and directed several plays starting with the trilogy of satires on modern Ireland comprising The Hit List, 2020 and Afterlife. He also recorded his nature diary, One Eye, One Finger, written during lockdown and published by Lilliput Press. Drama on One is delighted to make this work available to hear and download as part of the John Borman collection on the Drama on One website. Next week's Drama on One is Domestic Robots, written and directed by John Borman and starring Brendan Gleeson and Stephen Ray. Here now is In the Wings, in which John, Brendan and Stephen talk about the play and much more besides. This programme was recorded in 2018. I am John Borman. I'm the writer of Domestic Robots. My name is Brendan Gleeson. My name is Stephen Ray. I'm playing a character called Sean. The part I play is uh, Rob, the domestic robot. Um, Yeah, that's the part I play. (laughs) Yes. The idea came really when I was thinking about the future, thinking about my children, the world they'll be living in, problems of uh, overpopulation, of uh, climate change. And I figured out what really would be needed to make uh, this planet livable in. And, and I, I thought about robots would certainly be part of it. And I discovered that um, what, what we would need in Ireland is a visionary statesman to put in, a, in effect the, the, the things that need to be done. Sean is a man living in this uh, new world of robots, but he's pretty suspicious of the robots. He's recently been employed. Now he hasn't got a job and I think he mistrusts the robots. And I think he's right. (laughs) Overpopulation is obviously the most pressing of these problems. And so one of the things that I suggest this visionary statesman does is to go along with the other countries of the world where they agree to reduce their populations. So you have to get permission to have a, a child. Yeah, I, th- I think it's quite an optimistic look at the future. It's 2068, 50 years from now. And basically money has disappeared. A lot of things have disappeared. Um, and people have the opportunity to follow their every desire. So finding a sense of purpose and finding the ability to be contented within that is proving elusive. Well, I didn't get into eugenics or notion, you know, the Hitler notion of breeding healthy people and not allowing unhealthy people to breed, that, that is anti-democratic. So the penalty for having a child is that um, your life expectancy is reduced. And so you really need to want one 
if you're prepared to die younger. John Berman's writing always has a metaphysical element to it. Um, it's always referring to the nature of who we are and our foibles, but it's always so light of touch. There's a lot of love in it. Um, but there's also a lot of observational comedy that's very wry, uh, very kind of understated and kind of wicked. So it's always a pure joy and a total honour to to, uh, to work on his material. Well, he shouts at him a lot. Uh, and the robot shouts back, which is a bit much, really. I mean, <laughs> well, the others seem to be kind of to adore their robot, don't they? But, um, oh, he doesn't like it. I, I suggest that everyone will live to 120 by taking this uh, life extension programme. But to ha if you have a child, your life expectancy is reduced. In other words, made rather normal. 70, 80. So you make a sacrifice in order to have a child. That's what dictates. If you can find the good writing, you're going to, that's where you, where you go, right? That doesn't, because the rest of it really doesn't come into it an awful lot. It's very difficult to actually get writing at the calibre. Like, I've been very lucky to have been allowed to tackle some extraordinary writer's material. That's the way I feel very lucky about it. I know I'm very lucky. And that's always what you're in search of for the next piece of writing that will excite you and bring you into a place that you would never have gone before. Well, it's always about the writing, isn't it? I mean, as Brendan says, you know, that's where we, that's the starting point, you know, that, and, and, and of course, when you read a play, like say David Ireland's play, Cypress Avenue, you, you know instantly that unless he has a nervous breakdown by page 14, that this is a great play and it would continue to be a great play. Um, I think it's one of the best plays I've ever been in. And it's well, the same with this. So, you know, there's no good comparing one medium with another. It's, it's just been a total pleasure to be in a radio studio doing this play. And even the size of the role, it doesn't matter. It's because everything, you, you your character is perfectly placed in the play. With good writers, that's the way it is. And... You know, that's but it is the, always the writing. I don't know if that's true so much in America because the, I think films are made by some often are put together by committee, aren't they? And but we still here have a kind of belief in in the text. Well, of course, these are very serious issues, and I'm only really capable of writing comedy. So the the play is a, a, a comedy. And but it touches on all these issues, so I, I hope it's enjoyable to listen to. And but perhaps you think a little bit more about them after you've heard it. Well, we had Freeland Heaney and Tom Paul and, and Tom Kilroy, and I mean, this week, you know, I'm doing uh, this play, John Borman, then I'm going to Kilkenny and reading from The Big Chapel by Tom Kilroy, and then I'm reading. New York Time by Derek Mahan. It's an incredible week, you know, isn't it? You know, it's not It's not what people would say, oh, the glamour. It's just brilliant what those writers do for your imagination. You just know. You just, you know when you're, when you're into it that you're not second-guessing it. You're not... Usually what I find is that I'm just hoping it doesn't collapse because there's a kind of a building excitement when you see something that just has a certain quality, but it's always recognisable almost immediately. You know, the, the great thing, say, about David Ireland or Brian Friel or any great writer is that they do something for the medium that they're writing for. On the one hand, I'm saying the medium doesn't matter, but at the same time, David Ireland is actually plunging theatre into new areas so that you don't know whether you're shocked by the, the, the content or by the method. 
you know, and that's that's kind of thrilling. Well, I always go through a number of drafts and the, allow the characters to suggest how the, the thing should progress. So I do five, six, I think this is the seventh draft that we're working on. And it, I try to make it better each time and crisper and more and funnier. When you get to the later drafts, that's when you kill your darlings. You cut out all the things you're really proud of having written in order to make it clearer and stronger. I mean, absolutely. I do I do think that there's got to be a little bit less, I think in somewhere, particularly like RTE, somewhere like that, um, there's got to be a little less ego involved in what is given access. In other words, there's, there's always a kind of a slight feeling of too many tears, not particularly in RTE, but across the board with that kind of uh, hands-on production where there has to be an artistic input from, um, whereas uh, particularly with younger writers, the only way they're going to flourish is by making mistakes. And I think particularly in Ireland, people listen an awful lot. People are really interested in, in stories and drama and we keep telling ourselves this all the time. So the thing to do is just give them access that's kind of unfettered, which is not to say that you abandon them to their fate. It just means that you give them every support necessary that you can, but don't try to kind of colour their artistic vision in them. And I think that's how to keep a kind of freshness going on. You know, all the great movements come from making mistakes initially. And I just think that the more access, it's really about access and giving, pouring resources behind some of the younger people coming through and taking an experiment. I mean, there is great work being done, but just opening out the access and then kind of hands off other than to support, you know, and it's, not, it's easier said than done. But I think, you know, I think we, we, we're always producing people in this country, always. And the big thing that gets in the way a lot of the time is just the bureaucracy of actually getting stuff made. I don't know, you just have to trust the relationship between the actor and the writer. Um, sometimes there's interventions that I'm not fully uh, in favour of, you know, producers who aren't, you know, artistic directors, you know. Brennan Gleeson and Stephen Ray have been in all my radio plays and I certainly wanted them to be in this one. When Brendan read the play, he immediately said he'd like to play the robot. And I was a bit surprised at that. But when I talked to him about it, and we played around with, with, with voices and ideas, and it became possible. And um, he's magnificent in this, in this role. He really holds the whole thing together, really, because he's playing a character that has no emotion, and Brendan is a very emotional man. And he's able to do that. It's an extraordinary act of acting. And Stephen has a wonderful... Delivery, I, you know, I'm I'm very lucky to get these actors, and 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 also the whole cast, uh, brilliant actors. I'm very I'm very lucky to have them. And I think you need to be canny about money if you're going to put in a lot of production value in terms of you're going to spend a lot of money on cameras and all that, and lights and all sorts of things. Then you have to have an international dimension. It's very difficult to do that with the kind of pool that we have here to pay for it. On the other hand, if you're going to be inventive in the way that you present stuff you know I've often wondered why they don't go back to the 50s where they presented live plays for example and the electricity was in the fact that they were live on TV you know and I don't understand why that can't be done for practically no money here so I do think sometimes the money is, is a little bit of a an excuse to do very little you know when we started with the Patch Machine, I was a member of Paul Mercier, and you 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 did a black box theatre with a table and four chairs and that's all that was that was it 
so I do think sometimes money is used as an excuse. Um, be canny if you're going to do it with the, all the bells and whistles. But otherwise, I think we can do an awful lot of inventive stuff uh, without the massive budgets. You've got to rely on the actors and the writers. That's what, what I believe, you know. And sometimes concepts intercept energy, I think, you know. And uh, that's what works is, uh, I mean, my God, to work with David Ireland gave me a new lease of life in terms of what I could attempt, you know, because he's offering you stuff that you haven't really seen before. And that's where you want to get to. But, you know, it's not, it is magic. How does, how does that happen? I mean, the Abbey took his play, but they didn't, they made it happen, but they didn't make him a writer. He was already a writer. You know, I don't know. It's, it is mysterious how, the great arts are mysterious, aren't they? Well, of course, if you're making a movie, it takes at least two years between the writing and the conception and getting the money and getting the cast and putting it together. And most film scripts don't get made for one reason or another because there are many reasons why a film should not be made and you have to get, be up against them. Radio is so much more immediate. The writing can be converted into action so much quicker and it has much more dynamic, really, as a result of that. And I find it extremely enjoyable. I started out in radio, really, for the BBC when I was... 18, 17, doing live uh, uh, radio. At that time, it was even before the magnetic tape. We, I used to go out and do interviews, cutting a disc and watching that lacquer spiralling off the disc as we recorded it. So there are, go back a long way. In the, essentially, it comes down, though, to the material and the performance, like, and the connection that the performance can make between the writer and the audience. Mm. And the medium then is part of that communication. That's all it needs to be. If the central sort of creative forces are the writers, the performers, and then the audience. You know, in the audience, you want to get an audience, obviously, because there's nothing without it. But I think you can do an awful lot by just allowing things to happen. And access is the huge thing. Give the youngsters especially, and the people who have been doing it for years, just give them access. Well, Lee Marvin was a marvellous film actor, technically brilliant, and I learned a lot from him. He was also very supportive of me when I was making Point Blank in 67. When I'd met him in London and we'd spent many hours talking about this possibility, and he, there was a script which both of us were given, and we, when we... Um, Met Lee said to me, what do you think of this script? I said, I, it's terrible. He said, well, I, I agree. What are we talking about? I said, the character. And we then talked and worked on it. And finally, in his apartment in London, he was making the Dirty Dozen at the time, and um, he took the script and he said, I'll do it with you on one condition. And he threw the script out of the window, which was his uh, typical Marvin gesture, uh, so uh, we did. I did that. I rewrote the whole whole thing. And when I went to Los Angeles, he called a meeting with the head of the studio and the producers, and he said he reminded them that he had um, script approval and cast approval, and they agreed he did in his contract. He just won the Academy Award, and he said, "I defer those approvals to John." And he turned on his heel and walked out. And I had four 
men glaring angrily at me. <laughs> this young director had complete control over the film and they had none. I mean, he realised more than I did that making a film as daring as this uh, was something I, you wouldn't get away with in Hollywood unless you had uh, a, a, a strong backing. Well, I think we have to take responsibility for, you know, uh, self-examination on the national station. And I think we have to be honest about it. It was a while when drama was practically, you know, uh, out the door. And a lot of that had to do with really not wishing to look at who we were. And we suffered because of that. Um, and I think the longer, I think it's part of the remit is that we have a certain self-examination going on, a certain uh, exploration of where and who we are and all that. And... Uh, so I think the arts can, you know, are part of that conversation, a very vital part of it. And, you know, we shouldn't look on it as a, a duty so much as a gift. You know, I think everybody benefits from it. Stanley Krubik, I could say, uh, on the normal circumstances, I, I, I could say he was a great, great friend of mine. I'm not sure that I was a great friend of his. He, um, we talked a great deal about everything, and um, he was in, extremely knowledgeable, and he questioned everything. This was a great thing about Stanley. He questions everything. For instance, he, had, he said to me one day, do you still write your scripts in a conventional way? It always puts you on a back foot, you know. I said, well, I suppose I do, yes. He said, he said well, with, 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 the, you know, with the dialogue narrow and the directions wide, I said, yes, I do. He said, well, I do it the other way. He said, I, I make the directions narrow and the, and the dialogue wide because the directions are much more important than the dialogue. And, of course, Hitchcock used to say that when he and the writer had finished the script, they would go back and put in the dialogue, which, of course, he started in the, in the silent era. I'm working on my funeral arrangements. That's my next project. <laughs> 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 Brendan Gleeson's unmistakable laugh there ending this week's In the Wings. You also heard the voices of Stephen Ray and John Borman talking about John's play Domestic Robots, which is next week's drama on one, broadcast in tribute to John as he approaches four score and ten years. This programme was recorded in 2018. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. A lie told often enough becomes the truth. Drama on One, Sundays at 8pm. The pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Compassion is the basis of morality. Drama on One. The tongue like a sharp knife kills without drawing blood. Drama on One. I'm Stanley Townsend. I'm Angeline Ball. I'm Stephen Ray. Hi, I'm Lawrence Kinlan. Hi, I'm Saoirse Ronan. I'm Nick Dunning. Hi, I'm Brendan Gleeson, and you can hear me at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.